Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is sponsored in part by the Downtown San Diego Partnership, a nonprofit advocate for the economic vitality and growth of downtown. From side-splitting annual dinners to free weekly yoga classes, the Downtown Partnership hosts dozens of can't-miss events each year. Get your tickets now to the annual Taste of Downtown, one of the premier culinary events in San Diego. Experience the flavors of downtown by sampling tasty bites from more than 40 restaurants throughout the Gaslamp Quarter, Financial District, and East Village on September 14th. To buy tickets and learn more about upcoming events, becoming a member, and the partnership's vision for downtown San Diego, visit www.downtownsandiego.org. Welcome back to I Made It in San Diego, Voice of San Diego's podcast about the stories behind the region's businesses, the big and the small, and the people who made them what they are. I'm Kinsey Moreland, and in this week's show, a story about soap making that has never been about just the soap, at least not for the Bronner family. One thing that makes Dr. Bronner's soap products different is the peppermint. You can really feel a tingling sensation, especially on your more uh, sensitive body parts. You can always tell the folks that use it. There's a smile on their face and they always smell clean. Don't let them tell you that it's not okay. It's personal hygiene and oh, by the way, Dr. Bronner's makes your hoo-hoo tingle. Ladies, you know what I mean. Another thing that makes Dr. Bronner's soap stand out is its many proposed uses, including washing your dishes, hair, and teeth, or even clearing up your sinuses. And you put the Dr. Bronner in, like a, like a tablespoon of it, and then you go ahead and you put some hot water. We use like a hot water heater to go ahead and heat up our water, put that on top. Then you get a towel, you put it on your head, which I always like wearing towels on my head, and you should too. And just smell that bad boy. And And perhaps the defining feature of Dr. Bronner's soap are the labels, which are different. And now for selected readings from the Dr. Bronner's Magic Himself Auto Label. Each swallow works hard to be perfect pilot, provider, builder, trainer, teacher, lover, mate, no have true hate. So each day, like a bird, perfect thyself, have courage, and smile, my friend. Unlike other soap products, there aren't any images conjuring up cleanliness or refreshment. There aren't any images at all. Do one thing at a time. Work hard, get done. Then teach friend and enemy the moral ABC that unites all mankind free. Instead, the labels are filled almost entirely by text. Words are everywhere. And the text is what the soap's founder, Emil Bronner, called the moral ABCs. 
Emil died in 1997, but here he is talking about his philosophy in the 2006 Dr. Bronner's Magic Soapbox documentary. The moral ABC that uh, the wise man in the temple, nice and Ted and Saint Michael, is he a teacher of righteousness, of light, the real Rabbi Hillel, Some people think Dr. Bronner's labels are part of what makes the soap awesome and unique. Others just think it's wacky and weird. The moral ABCs are essentially Emile's spiritual philosophy of humanity's oneness. And the soap maker thought it was important to have some of its main tenets printed right there on every label of soap. Basically, he thought his messages were even more important than the medium, the soap that has since made his family wealthy. Emile's stream of consciousness writings do say some things one might expect to come along with a soap bottle, like absolute cleanliness is godliness. But it also includes lots of quirky and hard-to-follow parts about God, Spaceship Earth, Mohammed, Jesus, the Marxist welfare state, Arctic timberwolves, and more. David Bronner is Emile's grandson, and he helps run the company today as the CEO, or what he calls the Cosmic Engagement Officer. David says his grandpa's philosophy is ultimately about love and togetherness, but it came from a dark place. More on that later. But first, back to David, who's made a name for himself in recent years as a vocal and visible advocate for legalized marijuana. He's also on the forefront of a newer push to legalize the psychedelic ingredients found in magic mushrooms and ecstasy as medications for conditions like PTSD and addiction. While the country has a debate around medical and recreational varieties of cannabis, that non-drug industrial hemp varieties, uh, red for seed and fiber, uh, you know, let them out of the drug war. The Obama administration has worked in bad faith. That's the sound of David back in 2012 when he locked himself in a cage filled with marijuana plants in front of the White House to try to persuade then-President Barack Obama to legalize the cultivation of hemp plants across the country. Hemp is an ingredient in Dr. Bronner's soaps. David has helped fund political campaigns to legalize marijuana in states across the country. He's also a ponytailed, tie-dyed, shirt-wearing vegan who, when I got into his diesel-powered car to take a photo of him, had a small model on his dashboard that he made of a gas chamber. He told me it's a model of a more humane way to kill chickens, and he's pitching meat industry folks on the idea in his spare time. And when he's not doing all that activism, he's helping run his family's successful multi-million dollar soap company, the roots of which date all the way back to the 1800s. David says Emanuel Hailbronner, his grandfather's grandfather, started a soap-making factory in the basement of his home in the Jewish quarter of a town in Germany in 1858. From there, business boomed. The family enterprise was very successful. They opened up two more factories, and by the time my grandfather was born in 1909, uh, his father, Bertolt, and two uncles were running the show that, and the largest factory was in Heilbronn. So Heilbronn is in southern Germany, and, and we had a factory there and manufactured the first liquid soap in Germany. So all the public washrooms in Germany uh, had our liquid soap. But David's grandfather, Emil Bronner, had some new ideas about the family's soap-making business. He also had some political ideas that made his family a little uncomfortable. The differences eventually tore the Bronner family apart, and then World War II prevented them from ever reuniting again. But despite a series of tragedies and turmoil, Emil stuck to his philosophical guns, and throughout his entire life, he continued building the soap company, 
mainly as a vehicle to spread his philosophy and ideas. And so my granddad was a really intense guy from day one and was frequently clashing with his dad and uncles. Um, he was Zionist and just uh, had a lot of newfangled soap-making ideas. And my granddad came up in the guild system of the time. He, he apprenticed to another soap-making family and got the equivalent of a master's in chemistry and he became a, a, a master soap-maker. Um, but at the age of 21, I mean, his Dad and uncles were like, you know, stop mixing politics and soap, stop rocking the boat. Um, so my my granddad at, at a certain point was fed up and, and left and came to the States in 1929 mm-hmm. and became a consultant to the U.S. soap industry and kind of set up, initially was in the Chicago area and then Milwaukee. Um, and then in, at the same time, Hitler was coming to power and, and things were getting increasingly desperate in Germany. And my granddad was getting increasingly desperate to get his family out. Um, my, his two sisters, two younger sisters, um, Lottie got out in 36 when she was 16 and ended up in a kibbutz in Israel or then Palestine. Um, and, um, Louisa got out in 38, right before the close of borders. And she came over to the States and they tried to get their parents out, but they wouldn't leave like a lot of the bourgeois Jews, like thought the madness was going to blow over. And then it was too late. The, not, the, the factory was Aryanized in I think 40 or 41. And they were deported and killed in 43. So my granddad, in the meantime, had married and had three children, including my dad. And then his wife, my dad's mom, was very sickly. And she died when my dad was like four. So my granddad was just dealing with all kinds of tragedy, just right, left, and center. And somehow in the midst of all this was having these intense experiences of unity and, and, and oneness and, and, and the deep love at the heart of creation. And, and, and you know, some even with all the tragedy and absurdity and violence and horror that there was this deep love and light and he felt that all the faith traditions of the world at their core were saying the same thing and all the spiritual giants were saying the same thing what he called the moral abc and felt that in a nuclear armed world that the next holocaust we're going to all die if we don't realize our transcendent unity that we're all children of the same divine source so he went around the the country kind of spreading his peace plan. You know, while he um, was actually then selling his soap, the family soap, the liquid peppermint soap on the side, and he would go around the country lecturing. And he actually was attracting quite a following in the Chicago area. And, and ironically, he landed right in the center of anti-Semitism in the States. I mean, this is the time of Father McLaughlin, and he had this radio show out of Chicago. It's the, you know, this enormous radio audience, and he was like a rabid anti-Semite. And, but anyways, my granddad, with his peace plan, was developing quite a following, and he actually had some guy actually crucif- crucified himself or had some help, obviously, right. but my granddad was not involved. And this is like 46 or something, and he crucified himself for my granddad's peace plan. And so that's, my granddad got on the authorities' radar, mm. and then he was lecturing at the University of Chicago and was arrested and basically put into a mental health, um, well, an insane asylum is what they actually called it at the time, against his will in Elgin, Illinois, and I think this is 47, but eventually escaped and came came to LA. And, and you know, at this point, you know, he kind of had a black mark on his name, so he wasn't really employable. So that's when he started manufacturing his own 
soaps and anyways just 100 percent full-time on the on the mission of of you know we must unite the spaceship earth mm-hmm. and you know nuclear weapons you know, obviously is becoming more and more of a you know existential immediate threat so he would literally just go out like on a busy street corner and stand on uh, no pun intended a soapbox and kind of talk um yeah well actually in la itself P- pershing square that was more or less exactly what he did and that's what a lot of people it was kind of like a famous area that a lot of people would lecture from but he would be invited to different lecture halls and, right and clubs and he would he would expound on on the all one philosophy but, all the while s- selling soap right I mean, yeah soap on, on the side he would you know kind of sell his soap but what he realized is people were starting to come more to buy his soap than to <laughs> hear what he had to say and so that's when he started to put what he had to say on the labels of our soap emil found some early success but then the 60s hit when the truth is found. and emil's soap and all it stood for took off Hippies loved the simple and environmentally friendly ingredients of Dr. Bronner's. And they liked his message of love and unity, too. You know, my granddad's message just caught fire and became kind of the soap of the generation and um, went everywhere with the hippies and was really a foundational kind of health product of the time. And... um, so, uh, you know, kind of VW buses and, and Dr. Browner's soap was kind of, the, you know, the icons of the time. Um, and he was, if you had a health food store and you're, you're, you had three products, one of them was Dr. Browner's soap. Mm-hmm. So let's yeah. step back a little bit. Uh, what made the ingredients so unique of the soap? Like what was so special about his soap? Because it was, I mean, not only the label and the moral convictions set it apart, but also just right. its many uses and how um, clean and sort of organic before organic was a thing. And Yeah, right? no, that's yeah, uh, a very good point. Um, my granddad was a, an early pioneer of ecological consciousness um, in the post-World War II period. Better living through chemistry was a mantra of the day, like basically make everything out of petrochemical feedstocks. So this was, you know, whether it was, um, you know, pesticides for agriculture or plastic or, or whatever, um, uh, or in the case of personal care and, and, and cleansing and moisturizing ingredients, um, there was a, a big shift to, instead of natural soaps, using detergents and surfactants made in part with petroleum or, or entirely from petroleum. And my granddad early on saw that, you know, this was not sustainable and was also very unhealthy for the body. And... Um, these ingredients didn't break down and persisted in the environment. So whereas natural soap, the way we make soap to this day is we make it the way it's been made for thousands of years. It's a very simple process. And basically, aside from ba- baking bread, it's like one of the simplest things humanity figured out how to do. It's a closed reaction. There's no waste stream and is you know rapidly biodegrades in the environment. So our the soap is... Um, you know, kind of as as all these detergent products were taking off and, and being marketed and sold, my granite stayed true to this like simpler biodegradable vision, you know, and a very concentrated product that would go a long way, you know, rather than diluting it and then thickening it up with some thickeners and, um, and then throwing preservatives into it. He just had a self-preserving, very concentrated soap that would just last forever. So mm-hmm. it was like saved on packaging. And so, yeah, so, you know, and you could use it for everything. You could wash your hair, dog you know, dishes, car, and not worry about polluting the river. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the attraction. So Emil, your grandpa, genius soap maker, charismatic moral philosopher who gained a following. What kind of businessman was he? How, how was he at building the business? 
You know, he conducted much of his business life in a leopard print Speedo on the sun deck. I mean, he was a pretty astute businessman, but I mean, he, at the same time, I mean, he was, saw what he was doing as a nonprofit religious organization. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he, for him, it was all about spreading the moral ABC and the soap was there to sell a label, not really vice versa. You know, the IRS actually disagreed with his tax exempt, uh, self-designated religious status and (laughs) he lost in an extended court battle and... But, um, you know, at the same time, I mean, he, you know, on, on one hand, if you did, didn't listen to what he had to say, he wouldn't sell you soap. So that was kind of crazy. But on the other hand, um, you know, he was just so, um, you know, passionate and on his ethics and, you know, just so charismatic that he just commanded allegiance. You know, mm-hmm. it was just amazing. He was just, you know, 24-7 bringing it from the mountaintop. Emil was a great philosopher. He was a pretty good businessman. But... David said he was never able to add good father to his list of achievements. My granddad had gone off to save the world, and basically my dad and uncle were raised in foster homes, and my granddad financially supported them, but was kind of absent. Mm-hmm. So my dad and you know my uh, my dad also didn't really want to hear about the whole cosmic vision. He was just much you know he kind of felt like that was part of my granddad's kind of escape from his family responsibilities. And mm. I mean he was just you know. Again, like 24-7, come and bring it. You know, he really didn't want to talk about anything other than uniting the spaceship Earth, you know, and any conversation that was talking about anything else within, you know, 60 seconds was on, you know, how we must unite the spaceship Earth, and <laughs> you know. And so, you know, he was just an intense guy. I mean, for him, he just it was super important that we got that download. It took me a while to really appreciate. Really, I had no idea what he was talking about for mm-hmm. most of my life until after college and had some kind of pretty massive psychedelic experiences that, um, you know, made me realize we do live in a spiritual mystery and that my granddad really knew what he was talking about, um, mm-hmm. that there is, you know, some a, a deeper love and light in, in somehow in this reality that, um, and that there are many paths to it and, mm-hmm. and really kind of on the bar, you know, Bob Marley, one love tip. He, he was a smart guy. Um, but, you know, really much more focused on promoting the message really than right. building the business per se. Um, but, you know, it's just kind of, um, it nonetheless, you know, spread, um, with the counterculture pretty much across America and, um, was very successful. I mean, yeah, it probably was the equivalent of a $20 million a year enterprise in the early seventies, Wow, you know, then declined for a bit you know, and then we had the IRS problems and all that. Emil ended up having to pay the IRS $1.3 million in back taxes. By 1985, the company was forced into bankruptcy. The person who ended up saving the company was actually Emil's son, Jim, David's dad, who, despite a falling out with his absentee dad, rolled up his sleeves, got to work, and alongside his wife and brother Ralph, put the company back on its track to success. It wasn't like the smoothest transition. I mean, my was sick, he was in the hospital, my dad and mom and uncle, you know, kind of stepped in. This is all when things were hitting the fan with the IRS. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was all these back taxes. And, you know, my dad, you know, they fired all these bad advisors my, my granddad had and really kind of righted the ship and got the business on a sound financial footing. And then my granddad rallied back and, and, and for for a period of time, but then was sick again. And, um, and at that point, um, my dad and 
uncle and mom stepped in to run the company full-time and my dad was also running his own business that mm-hmm. um, I had come up in um, and my granddad as he had Parkinson's and kind of as he, he kind of slowed down um, and and I think his relationship with my dad improved dramatically and my dad on his part was just, did a lot of self-work and and my granddad was just kind of you know coming down off the high, you know mountaintop a little more and so the, their relationship improved quite a bit so my dad and mom and uncle Ralph really put it Put the company on sound financial footing and implemented a lot of the progressive employee practices we have and yeah and really we're stewards of the company through the 90s and how did they grow the business during that time or did they did it kind of uh, level out for a while there yeah or? you know it leveled out and i mean it slowly grew but incrementally mm-hmm. um it was um you know it was really um kind of by the late 90s that things really took took off um my granddad died in March 7th, 90, 1997, actually the same day our daughter, Maya, was born. Oh, wow. Um, Must have been an intense day. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, and then um, in, in, in this time, like I'd gone to college, I'd gone to Amsterdam, had these really big experiences, come back, become a mental health counselor, really politically activated around cannabis reform and, you know, that the psychedelics and, and cannabis were sacraments and that the drug war was in large part a, a religious war on the counterculture, you know, got politicized in that way, but also became vegan and, and, you know, just realized the disaster of our collective consumption choices on the planet and that we were shredding ecosystems and, you know, communities worldwide to feed our unsustainable um, consumption pattern. And um, so, you know, really started to get on my granite's wavelength. Um, and I want to hear more about the experience that got you there. The exact, yeah. I mean, so was it, did you smoke pot and then have these? Did you do acid? Oh, like, yeah, what it was, was the... yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was in a gay trans club in, in Amsterdam, LSD and MDMA. <laughs> and just having like, just, you know, just levels of my identity, just like exploding through them, like to like a core of, you know, in, you know, we're souls here to get down with each other and be of service and, you know, just stripping away all the kind of dumb stuff painfully, but, you know, just getting to a place where, um, you know, there's this love and light and just, you know, I want to be cool. I want to be, you know. So David was working in Amsterdam and loving it. But then his grandfather died and his daughter was born. And that's when everything changed. So I became a mental health counselor for a year and a half. But, you know, in the course of which realized how amazing our family company was. And, okay, it's, I'm ready to come in and let my dad know that. So that's a big realization, though. How did that, was it a moment where you're like, wait. I want to work. I want to work in my family business. Or did it? Was it more gradual than that? Like, what was there one moment where that flipped for you? Yeah, it was kind of gradual, I guess. I mean, it was a real moment to, that I didn't want to work. I mean, I remember that real clear. I was like, wait, I can just live in Amsterdam and grow plants and you know do this. You know. So you defied, decided firmly, no family business for you. Yeah, and then but then there's you know actually my then girlfriend now wife uh, I got got pregnant. She miscarried, but it was like, yeah, I got to come back. It's like this whole plan of her graduating, coming to Amsterdam isn't going to work out and I need to be with her. And mm-hmm. so I became a mental health counselor in the Boston area while she finished up school. But in the course of that, you know, just as I was like kind of deepening my kind of investigation into these experiences, which I didn't have a whole lot of context for. And, you know, I'm just really growing to appreciate where my granddad, which who you know, it was kind of out there and all of a sudden, wait a minute, he's talking about these kind of realities and experiences I'm having. Um, 
And just, wow, this is, you know, what an amazing opportunity I have with this company that is so concerned about the environment and, you know, spiritual, you know, values. And okay. So, so that brought you back and, and your dad then got sick. Yeah. So luckily I was able to communicate to my dad this a month basically before he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Oh, wow. So he smoked most of his life, like age 12, the mid forties. And then he was in the Navy working around asbestos in the engine room. Um, and an industrial chemist around a bunch of stuff that was carcinogenic before they even knew it. Oh man. Yeah. So, but luckily I was able to come back and work with him for a full year. Uh, he, he actually rallied and we thought he was going to kick it. Uh, but he did live to see my sister and brother-in-law, uh, Lisa and Michael married in a, an incredible ceremony, you know, dancing with my sister, sunrise, sunset. And, uh, so, and he died on June 12th of 98. So then I had to step up and, you know, with my mom and uncle and run, run the show. And it was more or less at this point, you know, within a year or so, things really started to take off. When we come back, how David and his brother took Dr. Bronner's from a soap company popular with backpackers and the crunchy hippie type to a mega popular product you can find at places like Target. This podcast is sponsored in part by San Diego Life Changing, a campaign that highlights real stories of people who are impacting the world and upgrading their lives straight from San Diego. This campaign officially launches on September 19th at Petco Park when the Padres take on the Diamondbacks. Join us in celebrating everything that makes San Diego the best place to live and work. Visit padres.com backslash San Diego Life Changing to purchase your VIP tickets using promo code SD Life Changing. Hello again. You're listening to I Made It in San Diego. I'm Kinsey Moreland. Dr. Bronner's has always been popular among the type of folks who shop at health food stores. But nowadays, the soap company has officially made it big, like $100 million a year big. And now it's popular with a more mainstream crowd. These days, the company employs almost 200 people in its factory in Vista, and it's grown without running any expensive or slick marketing campaigns. Instead, David says the Bronners increased brand awareness by sort of doing what their grandfather did. The company has put its philosophy and causes in the forefront. So issues like fair trade, progressive employment practices, and legal marijuana have become central to the business, garnering a lot of press and attention along the way. When the soap company wanted a more ethical source for coconut oil used in its product, for example, there weren't any available. So instead it decided to create its own. Then the company produced a short documentary about the effort. So Surrender Paul is Dr. Bronner's sister company, the first project worldwide to produce organic and fair trade coconut oil. The company has also made workers' equality a priority by capping its management salaries at 5 to 1 compared to that of its lowest paid employee. The company gives employees generous bonuses, offers a 15% profit share, and provides employees with a no-deductible health care plan. And David says he's put thousands and thousands of dollars into running political campaigns, many of them successful, 
to get legal marijuana on the ballots across the country. The causes the company champions, David says, have clicked with a growing number of people across the world. I met my husband about seven years ago, and um, he'd just gotten back from a backpacking trip in South America, and he's the one who first, I think I have a memory of him reaching into his backpack and pulling out Dr. Bronner's soap and saying, you know, oh man, I use this for everything. And that's the my first intro um, to your product. Now, flash forward to even, you know, less than 10 years. I mean, it's ever it's in Target. Yeah. It's in everywhere. I think I bought two, no, three bars of soap the other day at a Ross Dress for Less in La Jolla. <laughs> and so how how did you do that? How did you take a brand. I mean, this happened under you and your brother's leadership, really. That's when yeah. the business really started to take off. So what's the secret? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of like lightning in a bottle, but it's kind of the way my granddad did it. You know, it's just, we're like, just really kind of fight hard for the causes we believe in. And, um, you know, we're kind of like cause marketing 101, but way beyond it, you know, like people like respect that we're not just doing it for the marketing bang. We're actually in our fights to win them. And throw down in a way that's you know like earns us a lot of media, earns us a lot of um, yeah basically free advertising mm-hmm. that um, you know connects with our customer base who really wants to purchase products that are making a difference in the world that aren't screwing people over in the process. Do you think a lot of it was you know you mentioned the first big boom was in the '60s and '70s where the ethos matched up with you know the VW vans and p- people like my hippie parents were really into this stuff. Um, you know, maybe in the eighties, there's that law, which ties to less people being into this stuff and maybe more attracted to different things. And then now we're back to a point, right. Where it's just mainstream to care yeah. about the environment. Right. Are we just at a good place for Dr. Broders and like the yeah. ethos are lining up now? And- yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of the other really major point to make is that the, the health and life health and healthy living and, and sustainable living is going mainstream in a huge way. And like, we're just writing that kind of general cultural trend for sure. And, um, but you know, staying independent and real about it. I mean, most of the independent real deal brands have been bought and sold out a bunch of times. There's not a whole lot of independent natural brands of any size left. Um, but you know, so, you know, writing that larger trend, but then also kind of keeping it real and as like, you know, a lot of custom, a lot of these brands kind of lose their way or just become like kind of minor brands and like much larger consumer product portfolios um, that are largely non-organic and non-mission aligned with the core ethos of the customer base that, you know, the, these green brands are um, kind of geared toward. Mm-hmm. I think they lose steam I and mean, people figure it out, you know, it's like, wait a minute, you know, something's different, mm-hmm. you know? So I think like, I, I, you know, we've just kind of remained true and just kind of been rewarded with like keeping it real and independent. I mean, I mean, I do understand business, you know, it's trial by fire, a lot of it. And um, I think that's part, I mean, a lot of our success really it, to, I mean, obviously we've got all our activism and stuff, but no, that is going to happen without having a really efficient, tight operation and sustainable margins and all the rest of it goes into running a, a good business. And we got really good people. And, but even there, I mean, activism has really helped attract incredible talent to our team and basically are getting paid less than they would otherwise. Um, but just because they are so mission aligned. Mm-hmm. And so we just have incredible people in our operation who are able to rock like the more traditional Um, you know, sales, marketing, inventory Mm -hmm. control, all that kind of stuff. 
Many of the struggles Bronner's encounters while the company continues to grow come from being a family business. Family stressors become business stressors too. But David says he's never grown bored because Soap has always offered a new adventure. The latest adventure is his activism around psychedelic drugs. Turns out you can ride Soap in all kinds of interesting, fun, adventurous things. And so I'm never bored. Um, you know, and, and the stress is just, I feel like, well, it's a calling and this is what I'm called to do and engaging in these fights. I'm on the board of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, an amazing entity that's driving uh, MDMA ecstasy uh, through FDA approval process. We're now in a phase three, which is the last phase before we get FDA approval for treatment-resistant PTSD. And then there, and then we have allies at Hefter and USONA that are doing the same thing with psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. But they're um, administrating, you know, really careful, careful, rigorous trials with end-of-life anxiety and major depression and just showing incredible benefit as people, you know, just blast through and are able to kind of, I guess, adapt and check self-destructive patterns of, um, you know, relating to themselves and to others and, and addiction. There's this incredible hope with psychedelics and breaking addiction, whether it's alcoholism or opiate addiction. and. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this is really exciting for me, and, um, but we have a very steep price tag to conduct these phase three studies. So it's like something I'm spending a lot of my personal time on right now is meeting with people and trying to fundraise to close this gap. And we've made a personal commitment as a company of $5 million, $1 million a year for five years to help drive this. And we do feel integrating these psychedelic medicines into culture in a responsible way. Uh, it's going to be hugely beneficial and, you know, not to substitute for meditation or prayer or, or devotional practice, but as an adjunct and ally, uh, can be very helpful to help, um, you know, give people insight and, and, um, help people find a path. So to- that probably sounds pretty wild to a lot of people, but you've been through a similar battle or war, if you will, with, with cannabis, which yeah. even just like five years ago, what, you know, if you would talked about marijuana in that way would have seemed out there but we're at a point now and you've been very involved in this directly with through litigation with the DEA the Drug Enforcement Agency and the um Department of Agri- the US Department of Agriculture you've been arrested multiple times at least two or three times that I know of um right. one time you locked yourself in a metal cage in front of the White House with some hemp plants with you um do you feel like you've won that war did yeah, well, in the process of winning it, yeah, it's, you know, it was a long, hard slog, you know, I mean, 1996, California passed Prop 215, that was the first medical marijuana, and, you know, that was the first major victory, um, you know, where, where, you know, recognition that medical cannabis is like an incredible medicine, incredibly safe medicine, and, you know, from, from there to, to now, I mean, obviously, I've, you know, aside from people suffering and, and needing uh, cannabis as a medicine, uh, you know, cannabis is, you know, for, is an incredible ally if you approach correctly to help us, you know, break out of our moods and kind of selfish low selves and can help us kind of orientate on a higher flow and relate to each other on a higher level and appreciate each other on a higher level in this magical world we're in. You know, people should not be, you know, put in jail and their lives shredded and destroyed over something that is like by far, you know, just not even close to alcohol, alcohol is like zero redeeming qualities. I mean, it's great, you know, 2012, we won in Washington, Colorado, 
And then in 2014, it was Oregon and um, Alaska and D.C. And D.C., we were the primary financial sponsor and, and driver of. And that's great because, you know, it's D.C. It's just a city, but you're talk, your local media is talking to the national leadership. And so it's great. Um, and then, of course, you know, this recent election cycle, we, you know, aside, I guess, Arizona, you know, we, we won eight, eight out of nine states. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of even with Trump and, and Sessions as AG. I mean, obviously, Sessions is a concern. But at this point, we feel like all the we have all the momentum. And on the industrial hemp front, where, you know, industrial hemp is this non-drug agricultural crop. It has nothing to do with marijuana. You know, the whole myth that marijuana growers are going to grow in a hemp field is ridiculous. So it's a great non-drug agricultural crop. And with tobacco going down the tubes, uh, you know, hemp is coming back in a huge way in Kentucky and elsewhere. And so that's for, that means we got Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. We got, huge, you know, really powerful allies on the Republican side. Um, and we're confident we're going to get the Industrial Hemp Farming Act uh, introduced and passed this year, mm. even with a, a Trump administration. So, um, you know, when you use hemp oil in your product right now? Yeah. So uh, in 1999, we introduced hemp, hemp seed oil and, and um, yeah, and so we adding hemp seed oil, like all of a sudden, you know, there's cannabis and hemp in our soaps and all these stores. And so you've been using your soap to move the culture and successfully, a lot, yeah. a lot of people would say. Yeah. Well, a small part of much larger movements. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to sure. take all the credit, but. Yeah. <laughs> Outside of the activism, another thing that has gotten Dr. Bronner's attention is something the company calls the All One Magic Foam Experience. The soap company basically shows up at certain events and blasts people with mountains of soap foam. David says it's a fun marketing effort inspired by his dad, Jim, who actually invented the industry standard firefighting foam concentrate in the 1980s and launched his own successful business called Dr. Bronner Chemical and Technical Consulting. He ran that company for years before the family eventually sold it. Inspired by firefighter foam, Jim also built a foam spraying device in the front yard of his family's home. Me and my brother and our family grew up with uh, blasting foam all over each other on trees. And we had, you know, an inch and a half fire hose when a compressed air foam system that are on fire trucks in our front yard. And it was super fun. And I, we ran around with my dad and just would blast foam on you know, schools and old folks' homes and parks and parties. And it's just, uh, it's like a transformative, just transformed spaces. You know, when you blast foam, it's like knocking over a fire hydrant. And all of a sudden, it's just this like whole other magical reality we're in. Unfortunately, when my dad died, it was just so overwhelming. And, and we basically had to sell a lot, you know, kind of shut down Bronner Chemical and Technical, which was that his business and focus on the soap business. But then 10 years later, when I was going through a tough time, I was going through a lot of stuff and thinking about my dad and remembering, you know, just, wow, just how amazing it was, blasting foam on everybody and built um, a, a, a compressor foam system based on one of his late designs and brought it to Burning Man. And um, just was a huge hit. We were just clearing out blocks of people coming out to get blasted with foam. And we realized like, wow, this is, we should do this like all the time. So the the thing we had to figure out is like, how do you contain the gray water? So like when you're blasting foam and water, it's like, you can't just be having gray water spill everywhere. So then we built a big bathtub, like a, like a 20 by eight foot bathtub that with a graded floor and a thousand gallon tank underneath. So people can blast foam on each other. And what we do is run Dr. Bronner's like soapy water, with like 1% Dr. Bronner's in it through a compressed air foam system. So it comes out like shaving cream <laughs> and, you know, high velocity and you're just blasting foam on each other. Um, and so initially we were doing like music festivals, but then we kind of backed 
you know, kind of just by accident into these mud runs that were taking off. So these like 5K mud runs, 10K mud runs, where you've got all these muddy obstacles and um, they're super fun. And then, you know, at the end, we'll kind of partner with the promoters. Uh, so at the end of the race, we'll have people come into, now it's not the bathtub, now we have what we call the sexy plexi, but it's the, <laughs> the shower. We got these like 20 foot trailers with eight foot tall uh, plexiglass. And um, people, you know, just come in there and we blast them with foam and get all the mud off them. And it's a big dance party and everyone loves it. Um, but and how really, do you think it ties into the ethos? Like it's just well, a good time and brings people together? Yeah, or? well, it really honors my dad. I mean, my dad was this, this really fun, loving guy. I mean, he was just, you know, just really about creating sweet, awesome, joyous spaces. And so that's like the number one thing we're doing. But then at the same time, it's also a perfect marketing vehicle. Like, hey, everyone's having this awesome time and, you know, it's like event marketing. And we're like, hey, I mean, by the way, here's our brand and what we're all about. And here, take the soap with you. And we're all about organic and fair trade and all this cool stuff. So it's kind of like all, you know, one about, you know, just creating an awesome experience for people. But then to, you know, just kind of marketing the brand and connecting it with the larger Dr. Browner's ethos. Anytime you talk about a making products or consuming products, you know, obviously your company does a lot more than your average business. Um, but we could all be doing more. And what do you envision Dr. Bronner's looks like in the next 20 years? Like for instance, um, you know, you use recycled material to make your bottles that you put the liquid soap into. Um, you do other things for the environment, but you know, outside of like a few select maybe health food or kind of hippie stores where people bring back in their own bottle and like refill their mm. um, their soap. That's something that I could think of, for instance, that maybe that'll be more mainstream and there'll be more people really thinking about every single thing that they yeah, pick right. up and throw away. But I mean, if things go the way you want them to, what will Dr. Bronner's look like in 20 years? Um, yeah, I mean, hopefully we're, you know, a bigger company, uh, not just to be bigger, but just to be that much more effective in deploying resources behind, you know, progressive causes and movements. Um, and hopefully those progressive causes and movements will have made, you know, a lot more progress. Um, I mean, it's yours, you know, the environmental movement, obviously the disposable waste consumer culture we have is crazy and I'm as guilty as anyone. It's nuts. You know what we're doing, you know, like just constantly all the packaging we just, you know, I felt weird a, about offering you that paper cup that has a Starbucks brand trust on it. Trust me, it's not. I'm no, I'm no like saint on this stuff, and you know, I could be way better. And um, hopefully, in the future, uh, yeah, it's like what you don't, you know, you duh, you go to the store and refill your Bronner's from a bulk. You know, you don't just buy the bottles, and not, you know, it's not like I'm the guy that always does that myself, but I should, and hopefully. Just, the, you know, it's just like curbside recycling or whatever, you know, no one did it until it was just kind of like critical mass and was real convenient. And all of a sudden everyone does it, you know, so long as you have like effective kind of community solutions. So, you know, working to implement policies that makes it easier, more convenient for people to do the right thing um, and normalizing the behaviors that we all know we should be doing, um, you know, really incentivizing them and making them easy and the easy choice. Um, yeah. Oh, hey, we got plastic bags i thought that was never gonna happen yeah no more. totally right <laughs> do you think after your leadership you and your brother you know get to a certain age that like your daughter will take over is this going to be a family business forever or? uh yeah i mean you know i'm uh cautiously optimistic that maya will want to come in um and uh 
Has she expressed interest or is she kind of? Well, she's 20. I mean, somewhat of an interest. She mostly wants to be an artist or set design or something like that. And I told her, you know, Maya, like, you know, regardless, you're going to own the company. So you're going to need to understand how to use this paintbrush and, you know, understand, you know, basic business 101 and our activism. But she's our, her heart. She's very activist, very socially aware and um, maybe too much. Uh, and um <laughs> So, I mean, she's got it, you know, so, I mean, hopefully, but she needs to find her path and, and make the, her own choices and kind of go through, you know, and if she chooses to do something else, that's fine. So. so why do you think it's so hard for people to follow some of the advice that is written on your labels? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's no magic bullet, but controlled use of psychedelics can really help us kind of retap into that core and that truth. You know, and I guess, you know, religious communities that are progressive and, and cool. I mean, I tried that as well. And I mean, it wasn't quite my cup of tea, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, surfing, getting out in nature. Thanks for listening to I Made It in San Diego. I wrote and produced the show. Andrew Keats edited it and Adam Greenfield mastered and mixed it. Visit VoicesSanDiego.org slash podcasts to learn more about our weekly Voices San Diego political affairs show, our Good Schools for All education podcast, the Kept Faith Sports podcast, and all the shows in the VOSD podcast network. If you like the show, go to VoicesSanDiego.org and click the donate button. Or if you'd like to sponsor it, contact Aaron Zlotnick at E-R-I-N at VOSD.org. <laughs>